Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network. So I've got Amy Koppelman on the podcast. Amy, how are you doing? Hi, thank you for having me. No problem. And I want to kind of just set the stage about what incredible things you've done and why you're here and what we're going to talk about. You've written three novels. To be honest, I didn't know about the third. Um, uh, You've written I Smile Back, which was just released as a movie with Sarah Silverman starring as the main character. So we're going to talk about that a little bit. Is that okay? Yes. And you, you, you also just released Hesitation Wounds. And by the way, we're recording this a few days before the book comes out, but we'll release this when the book comes out. And then what's this mouthful of air? I never, I didn't know about that one. That's my first novel, uh, A Mouthful of Air. It came out in 2003 on an independent press. It's no longer in business called McAdam Cage. And, um, it's about a protagonist named Julie Davis who suffers from postpartum depression, although at the time I didn't even know there was a word called postpartum depression. It took uh, so long to get published that by the time it got published we had a term for it, but um, I, I thought it was just more or less a variation on the same theme I, I of feel, depression. We're going to get into this when we talk about your books, but I feel like with each book, they kind of need to kind of revamp uh, the the DSM, you know, the Diagnostic and <laughs> Manual of Mental Disorders. So, because it yeah. seems like you, it seems like you catalog the different types of depression in your novels, and then of course in the movie. So, in the movie, I Smile Back, you wrote. It's not like the movie is based on the novel. You wrote the screenplay for the movie, also. So, yeah, I co-wrote that with um, Paige Dillon. So, so, but first off, I want to mention off, I want, I want to mention, you asked right before I hit record, you asked me a question that if you say something stupid, which I doubt you're going to do, but if you say something stupid, would I edit it out? And I told you definitely not. I, I hope you say something stupid. But, <laughs> but well, I, you know, I mean, I, I say like all the time and you know, and it's it's very embarrassing to hear those things, but um, to read them particularly, like if I read a transcript, I go, oh my gosh, I'm like illiterate. Well, but, 
Well, if I had to read the transcripts of my podcast, I'm sure I would never do another one. But let me tell you, uh, about a week ago, I had a governor on the podcast. It was like the first, the youngest female governor in U.S. history. And I didn't know her name. And literally, I said, you know, you're really hard to research because I can't, even when I Googled your name, I couldn't find anything. And I said her name and she said, that's not my name. No. <laughs> yeah. And she said, uh, this is my name. Well, at least you don't have, you could, you could edit that out. And I know I said, no, my readers are going to know exactly how stupid I am. Uh, what, what, what is her name? Where is she governor? Uh, governor Jane Swift. She was governor in the early 2000s in Massachusetts. Oh, wow. A small state. Yeah, and she was she was pregnant with twins, which she had while she was governor. Wow. So and wow. She, and by the way, guess what political party she was in Massachusetts? A female. Are you going to say she was a Republican? Well, I, I sort of give it away there a little bit, but yes, yeah, she was a Republican. <laughs> I was like, I think you're leading me on to you'll be astonished by the surprise of these things. But. Right. So see, you, you said a very smart thing on the podcast here. So yeah, she was a Republican, but I don't want to talk about her. I want to talk okay, about. Sorry, sorry. I want to talk about these books. So so hesitation moons. So I I had an opportunity to read an earlier draft. I smile back. I've read. I haven't seen the movie yet, but I've seen that the reviews are amazing. Um, again, Sarah Silverman in it, and and every, of course the reviews revolve around how this co- comedian comedian uh, is able to p- play such a serious and uh, I don't want to say inspirational. What's the word? She's a serious and it's like very dramatic character. Uh, but, but 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 all of these books seem to catalog a deeper truth. And and I want to ask you, kind of as a, a writer. You know, a lot of times people write memoirs instead of fiction because they think maybe fiction will will cloud over a little bit the truth. Uh, and, you know, Mary Carr just wrote The Art of the Memoir and, you know, a part of her, her book is about that. But it seems like you do the opposite where you're able to kind of describe a much more deeper truth by clouding it in, in not clouding it, but by kind of smoothing it over with... Uh, fictional characters and scenes and and so these characters I'll let you talk in a second but these characters they're they're in I smile back she suffers from um this deep depression which has this outlet in kind of her fidelity and her anxiety over passing on her depression to her children and and in hesitation wounds it's kind of the the depression is this this hole that she has from from a deeper loss that she experienced as 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 uh, you know a childhood loss, but and then and then you know gradually it comes full circle. But I want to know know about your life. Like, do these books come out of? Do you write them from this inner sense of loss or depression or grief? Um, I. I just uh, started writing like uh, a mouthful of air. I started writing that in. 1994, I wasn't thinking, oh, I'm writing a book, and I certainly, when I started realizing I was writing a book, had no idea I was writing a book about um, a mother who killed her child, because, I mean, <laughs> no one said that to write that book, but uh, what I I'm, do I'm is not I so just... Sure, no, I'm not so sure nobody sets out to write that book, but... Uh... 
Well, I, I surely hadn't known that that's what I was writing. I just started writing um, I on this blue typewriter that was that I had on the dining room table, and um, I started writing these letters to this brother of this friend of mine named Marty, who was older, and both of his um, parents were Holocaust survivors. And I guess we would just write letters back and forth to each other, uh, you know, about something funny that we read about or um, a book or, you know, nothing actually really very interesting, but I just started writing, and I guess I felt comfortable writing to him because I guess I just projected onto him that he was, you know, had sadness in him. As well, so we faxed these back and forth, and then um, I just started typing more into it, and that's basically what I do. I I just write and write for for years and years um, until I hit a scene, and then I um, realize, oh, that's what I'm writing to. So uh, then I go back and I look at all the you know hundreds of thousands of words or hundreds of pages, and the subconscious is an amazing thing because it's all there. I that I literally sit on the floor with like a scissor and I can cut out a sentence or a paragraph. But if I take them all together, I see the bones of what the story is. So. Um, but but you said you said you're and 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 I want to get to I smile back and hesitation wounds, which are sort of more fresh in the public and, and in your head, but you said you started writing to him because you sensed some, or you projected some sadness uh, onto him that he would perhaps uh, relate to your letters. What was the sadness inside of you that was driving this writing? Oh, because, because I'm sorry. I, because, I, I, I guess what, what I was trying to say from that was that uh, writing for me in, in um, early 1994, I fell into a very, very, very bad depression and when I started getting better is when I started corresponding with Marty and then I started writing. And so I think what happened for me was that uh, writing became kind of a receptacle for the sadness I felt inside myself. Um, when I was in high school uh, and college, I had very bad bulimia, but I was a very highly functioning bulimic. I mean, I went to good college. I was you know, the president of every club. Um, but once I moved um, in with uh, my husband, with Brian, and uh, he loved me so much, and I loved him so much, and I went to go do that. I remember taking the garbage bag, and I just thought, I can't, I can't do this to him. Like, I love him. I can't do this. And so when I stopped... Um, Growing up, and I didn't have that outlet anymore. That's when I actually really began to fall apart. And I guess um, writing replaced um, uh, the bulimia, which I guess is a, a much better um, way to get the sadness out. Uh, well, well a healthier say, way. They so, say, they yes, say, yes, I I had bad depression, or I had bad depression. I say have because I, I mean, even though I haven't had. Um, a bad episode in a very long time, I still look over my shoulder every day, you know, waiting to get clobbered by it. But um, so far, I've been lucky for quite some time now. Thanks. Well, can, can, I, can I ask, like, what was, what was the nature? Because, again, all of your stuff is about depression. So what was, what, this depression must have, like, cut deep. And, and what do you think was the nature of it? Was it, like, purely, uh, and, and, well, okay, two questions. One is, do you think fiction 
or the best fiction comes from when you're writing from a, a deeper, darker truth that you're not always going to be so comfortable talking about in a nonfiction way? Oh, um, I, I don't know. I, I don't really know how to answer that. I know why I read or why I go to the movies and what I'm looking for. Um, I know for me, uh, Brian gave me Franny and Zoe, and um, I read that, and I remember there was a line, Salinger, Franny, and Zoe, where Zoe said, um, I'm so tired. And I remember reading that and, and reading the passage and understanding that she was able to um, articulate a sense of tiredness that I couldn't, um, I, 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 I couldn't, wouldn't have been able to put into words. And over time, what I look for when I'm reading is, for somebody to be able to put into words a thought or a feeling that I have, and I might not even be aware that I'm trying to figure out. And then when I read it, I just feel so much less lonely. And so um, that's what I, that, I, that's not really answering your question, but I don't, I don't think writing has to come from a dark place to be good. I don't think writing has to be painful. I think somebody could write a romance novel and if that really touches somebody and, and gives them uh, an ability to um, escape, that's just as much value as somebody who's reading Faulkner. I sincerely believe that. I think all of us, um, whether we're writers or carpenters or uh, uh, teachers, we just want to be um, heard and understood. And so... Uh, for me, it doesn't matter if it's fiction or nonfiction or where the person's writing from. If they understand me somehow without even knowing me and it helps me understand myself better, that's the best kind of writing. Well, I think a lot of people say that writing does have like a healing factor because you're able to kind of explore these deeper layers of truth underneath yourself. It kind of comes to the top and you're able to think about them and, and look at them on the page. Yes, I think that, I mean, I, because of the way I write, I, I realized the other day something I hadn't really ever thought of before, which was that when I'm writing, and because it takes me so long to write, and because everything I write gets rejected so many times, that when I'm writing, I'm actually not writing thinking about anything other than just what I'm, I, I don't, this sounds like so pretentious, but like, you know, what I'm hearing in my um, head. And so I guess my writing the purest part of me because it's the only time where I'm not worrying about is the other person okay? Um, you know, as, as honest and, and pure as I am with uh, my husband and my children, I'm still worrying about, you know, their well, well-being or their needs. But when I'm writing, I'm just um, trying, I guess, to figure out the thoughts and feelings that I don't even know that I'm trying to figure out. Um, okay, so so let's take I Smile Back, for instance. And I don't want to give away too much of the, the plot because people should go read it and your writing oh, is... It's is, fine. You can you can give away the plot. It doesn't but, matter. But you know what? Your writing is like really beautiful and amazing and I want people to read the book. But also I'll get into a little bit of the plot. Essentially, this main character, Lainey, is, has some sort of depression in her which she has a hard time identifying and it maybe comes from uh, kind of loss of her father or things as it happens as a childhood. But she basically 
to put it bluntly, she can't keep her shit together as a mother and a wife. Uh, and, you know, so she acts out in all these ways, whether it's saying uh, inappropriate things in, in inappropriate company or even with in terms of fidelity with her husband uh, in, in various ways. And, and again, like, where, where does this come from inside? I'm not obviously oh, saying... Oh, okay. Well, um, I, I'm always the first to say that all the, the, everything that I write is, is personal and all the feelings of um, self-loathing, fear, anxiety, um, sadness, uh, futility, all of, you know, am I a bad mother, all of those I own. I just, my fears don't manifest in the way that um, my characters, in the way that it manifests for Lainey, um, as I've been, you know, sleeping with the same guy for 25 years now. Um, But uh, for Lainey, I really wanted to write a book about somebody who has uh, bipolar illness, who's manic depressive. And so the book, I think you see this kind of more in the book than in the film, tries to follow a manic cycle. So you see her go up and, and then down. Um, and uh, I always look at the different things that she does, whether it's the drinking or the sleeping with random men, uh, as um, manifestations, uh, as, as clues to, like, shoot, not as clues, as symptoms to uh, a larger illness. Okay, so, so let me um, ask you about... Which is the bipolar uh, yeah. um, that she suffers from. And let, let I don't me... usually say bipolar because then what happens is, you know, every psychiatrist will say, well, I mean, she's more borderline personality or she's more, you know, but it doesn't really matter. She has a mood disorder that she needs to get under control with okay. medication. Okay, let me ask you about that. So you, so you mentioned you had heavy depression earlier and you're always looking over your head head for that, but you obviously don't have, or as far as I know, didn't have um, kind of these other mood disorders, like the, perhaps the mania or whatever. How yeah. does someone like her uh, recognize it in herself, or is it possible? I mean, she clearly knows that she's acting out and doing things she doesn't want to do, or, or things that she knows are wrong. So how does someone recognize that in themselves, or is it possible? Well, I, I, I think that sometimes I, I don't, I don't know if I, I think I might have read this in. Um, there's a woman who writes a lot about uh, bipolar illness, the unquiet mind. I think her name's Kay Redmond Jamsfield. Um, sorry to tell you earlier, I'm terrible with names, but the unquiet mind, and I might have read this in that. But uh, basically, I always feel like depression. You go and you knock over, you know, you, you walk into an apartment and all the books are lined up in alphabetical order and you knock all the books off the shelves and then you feel very, very bad about it. And I always think, you know, the bipolar person when they're in a state of, you know, in a manic state will knock over all the books and won't feel bad about it until after, you know, which, you know, when they start going into the other side. Um those are my layman, my layman way of, of looking at and so, this. And so how did, you, how did you tap into your layman's view to create such a, a compelling uh, character? Because I really oh, am following that character and wondering, oh, my gosh, what is she going to do next? And how would I respond to it? Like, I got oh, scared reading about that character. 
Well, um, I, I started writing and writing for a long, long time, like I did with the first book, and then I wrote the scene where she gets, uh, she meets um, a guy in a bar. She goes into a bar looking to meet a guy in a bar, and he bangs her against the wall. And I remember I was at the library writing this, and he smacked her face against the wall, and I remember seeing her smiling, and I thought, oh, she she's actually at this moment happy because for the first time she looks on the outside the way she feels on the inside. And um, I thought she felt a real relief with that. And then I, I went back as, as I did with the first book and I saw that, that that was there. And then after I see like the bones of the story or what it is that I'm trying to say, um, then I start doing research and, and making sure everything that I write is correct and not, wrong you know so i read a bunch of books on on that and um i think that the i was also thinking not as much about the specific illness at times but i was thinking a lot about what do we inherit from our parents besides hair color and eye color and um what i wasn't realize what i didn't realize at the time but i realized after was that the laney character is very very similar to my father although my father didn't do drugs um, but he was somebody that I think so many of us who have been touched by people who have some kind of mental illness or mood disorder, often those people are the most charismatic and the most loving and the most fun to be with when they're up, whether it's up manic or just up not depressed. And then when the darkness comes, I think it's um, human nature or to, to try to think that, well, if you love them enough and you give them enough sense of home, um, they will get better. And um, so I guess I was thinking, well, I worked so hard to build this tiny little family that I love so much. And what if beside my father's brown hair and blue eyes, I inherited his um, need to destroy? And so I think I was writing through the fear of, you know, what if I bust this all up? What if I just inherently can't take it like this and I just destroy everybody before they have a chance to destroy me. Because I think that that Lainey is so scared of being hurt and being abandoned by them in one way or another, either that they betray her and leave her somehow, her family, or the best thing that could possibly happen, you know, if you're lucky and you live a long life is, you know, we die. And um, so either way you end up being, uh, abandoned and overcome with loss. And so I think that she um, can't handle that. And she gets so anxious about how much that will hurt her that she, she preemptively strikes, like I said. So, 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 you know, again, it seems like you, you've outlined kind of a, a, an interesting psychological technique for writing, which is to find through questioning Again, not necessarily darkness. It's, this is not necessarily a truth about you, but some sort of question you have, which leads to a strong vein of fear inside of you that then um, you deal with a page at a time until it becomes a book. Yeah, I, except for that I never really know what it is until many years after. So I didn't really realize that that's what I smiled back was about until... I don't know, five or six years after when I had some perspective and I was able to look at it and go, oh, that's what you are trying to 
figure out. So basically, yes, um, uh, I don't know what the right word is, you know, hoity-toity or whatever it sounds. I just re- rely on my subconscious knowing what I want to say before I even know what it is that I want to say or what even the question is. And well, so far I've been lucky because my subconscious is smarter than me. And, and um, I took a lot of classes with uh, Michael Cunningham, the great writer sure. Michael Cunningham who wrote The Hours. And um, we took these, my first classes were hit with him where he, he was teaching um, continuing education. And I remember, and this was before he wrote The Hours, and he was saying how, um, you know, by page 70-something, you'll realize that everything you thought you were setting out to write, you'll have no idea, but have faith in, in your subconscious because what you end up writing will be smarter than what you thought it was you set out to write. And so I always kind of hope, okay, well, hopefully he, he knows. Well, it's interesting because it, it, in, in I Smile Back, and again, this is the one that has just come out as a movie with, with Tara Silverman. In I Smile Back, um, it, there is a structure to it. So you kind of get Lainey successively worse in her um, kind of uh, outward uh, inner despair. In the outward expression of her inner despair, she becomes successively worse and worse. And you just described uh, uh, as a late, what was a later scene, um, that was a, a pretty intense one, particularly after the scenes that had come before it, but it was just, it was just worse and worse. And so there was a structure to it as you were writing it, whether subconscious or not. And then here's the question I have. Why, it seems like in the book, her husband just blindly puts up with her. And so what was kind of the thinking there in, in writing that character? Okay, um, well, the first thing is, I, I don't mean to say um, that I don't pay attention after I realize what I'm writing to structure. Of course, then I go back and I, I spend a lot of time thinking about structure. Um, or, I guess for me, the better way to say it is how I can tell the story with the least amount of words. Uh, I try to um, write as uh, economically as possible. And um, so I do think think about all those things. I, I didn't mean to say like, oh, that just comes out. I, I just meant the actual story or the feelings in the story or what it means I discover. And then I, I go back and try to, you know, carve out the story. The husband character is a um, complicated character. And I think in, a, in ways he's easier to understand in the film than in the um, book because, uh, I think, as I was saying earlier, he really, really loves her. And anyone who's loved somebody like Lainey um, or has been loved by somebody like Lainey or does the things that that Lainey does, but um, when you love somebody like that, he, he keeps thinking he can make it better. And he keeps thinking, well, if he just brings her to rehab or if he just loves her more or if he um, is just a little more patient, then it'll give her time to, um, you know, figure out the right medication and and get better. And I think that's why at one point, I think what you're talking about is he goes and visits her in rehab. And for Lainey, she feels it's very important to tell him these different things that he's, that she's been doing. You know, she's sleeping with a friend of his. Um, she's been doing a lot of drugs. And he doesn't want to hear. He almost uses the children as a shield. She tells them to come over and sit with him so that he doesn't have to hear 
her um, her say the the truth because you know if you don't say the truth then there's always the hope that it might not be true if you don't say the words then you can kind of tell yourself it's not true but if Lainey really says those things then he's going to have to address them and I think he doesn't want to he just wants it to get better uh, it's not a it's not benign neglect in in any way it's more just what happens I think a lot of times when you love somebody like that I mean I know no matter how much we loved my dad, my mom and me and my sister and my brother and, and, and how much we tried to fill whatever holes were in him, he, you know, was bound to destroy the people around him for, you know, for whatever the, the, the reasons were. And, and, and um, did they, did they, um, I mean, did your family stay with your dad? Uh, no, by the time when I when I got married, um, so in my early 20s, my parents finally got divorced, and then my dad was gone for a long time. You know, he was with different women. I mean, he was always a philanderer, but he was um, the most uh, charismatic and warmest and funny and fun to be with um, person and, and sensitive, but then he would have these extraordinarily dark periods. Um, he would do, uh, bad things to the family, um, in terms of like either, you know, cheating on my mom or, uh, spending money that we didn't have. Um, but we really thought for a very long time that if we just loved him enough and we treated him like how you would treat a thoroughbred horse, you know, if we kept brushing him and feeding him and taking care of him, he'd get better. And I think in terms of Bruce, when you accept that you can't make somebody better, and and I think most people can get better, um, especially now we're so lucky to be alive when there's all these different um, medications uh, that help people um, with the more serious mood disorders. Uh, but when you when once you have to uh, put an end to that dream and you can't have wishful thinking anymore, it's devastating. Um, in the movie. Uh, it was a very low-budget movie. It was made for under $400,000, so we only had one um, read-through, and then we went out like for like a little soupy soup. It was, a, I guess it was cold, and so we had soup. And I remember um, Josh Charles, who plays Bruce, was saying, in the last scene of the movie, uh, Bruce is looking at Lainey, and she's in very bad shape, and he's at the top of the stairs, and she's at the bottom of the stairs, and he says... Um, well, what kind of man who really loves their wife wouldn't go down the stairs and help his wife? Like, I just feel bad about not going down the stairs and, and helping her. And I do think by the end of the movie, when you look at him, you realize, no, he, ha he has to let her go. He has to protect his family, his children, and himself. And some people you can't help. They have to really want to help themselves. And, and if they don't, you have to kind of mitigate what the collateral damage as best you can. But you know, that's, that's almost like a very rational thing. Like, okay, um, I've got a scale and on one end of the scale, someone who's bringing us down and on the other end of the scale is my, the, my family and children. And so I'm going to weigh the scale and make a decision as opposed to, I'll just tell you like my, you know, what my gut reaction would be is I would be in so much incredible pain I wouldn't be able to handle it no matter what the consequences if I were him. Oh, yeah. I mean, he, you know, we don't see what happens afterwards, but, I mean, he is not going to have an easy time. He 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 loves her. And, um, 
he, he loved her with from when he was very young and with completely and he has these kids that are are part of her and 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 he yeah I, I it's not a rational thing that's why some people get very annoyed with his character and they say well I mean how could he stick around when she does all these bad things I mean he must know but it's not rational when you love somebody when you love somebody um completely you know it's through thick and thin and so you want to figure out how to make them better if, if it if it could be rational that would make it so much easier if you could write it you know if you could divide uh, take a legal pad and on the right side write all the pros of you know why i like being married to this person and on so, the left side the negative that would make it that's why he's a complicated character but so, i do think that you in the end see why it is that he can't be with her anymore and and she she makes a decision for him in in many ways Right, it's almost like where I Smile Back ends is where kind of other books, like let's say A Million Little Pieces by James Fry begin, when the person's like hit bottom and has to make a change. And, uh, and But it's interesting to see her progression into bottom. But I want to ask you, so A, I want to ask you about hesitation wounds, and B, I want to ask you more about what you said earlier about rejections and then about technique and about the business of it. So when you're just in terms of routine, like obviously you're, you're a great writer. You've written these books, you've written screenplay that, that that's actually right around the corner for me right now. It's playing at the Angelica theater. Um, what's, what's your daily process of writing as, as naive a question as it is, it's a question I always have on my mind. Um, I don't, I don't, um, have a, a daily, um, process. I I remember once when I was when I first had uh, when I had little kids. I met this writer. She's a very very good writer, and she told me every day I go into my bedroom at eight thirty and I lock the doors. And even if they're homesick, I just you know stay in my room and write. And I remember hearing that and thinking, Gosh, I don't really have anything that important to say. <laughs> so um, I you know my kids and um, uh, Brian. Uh, my husband, they always came first, um, and uh, so because of kind of where I go in my head or the mood, it puts me in. If I, if I know that you know they're gonna when they were younger, they were gonna be home from school at one, that didn't really give me a lot of time to um, get into that head and get out of that head. Uh, so um, I don't have a daily process except for when I'm writing. I just try to write and not censor myself. I just write and write and write and write little bits, big bits. Sometimes it's only, I only have time for a couple of paragraphs. Sometimes I have hours that I only get a sentence done. Sometimes I'll get three pages done and I just write and I just don't look at it again. It's just like I just freehand write or I write into uh, um, the computer and I really don't look at it again. So like I said, you know, years later when I stumble upon a scene and then I go back and I go, oh, and then I, I literally, the original definition of literally like I do take a highlighter, highlight those sentences, cut them out and with a scissor and tape them together and then start over, you know, from page one. So it's a very sloppy, messy kind of way to do it. But I never heard of I never heard of someone rewriting with scissors. 
No, I'm sorry. I don't rewrite with the scissors. I, I put the scissors down. I tape it together, and then I start rewriting with on the computer. And so with that, the taped up pieces of paper. So then you mentioned all the, the rejections. What does that mean? Like, did you submit this to a bunch of publishers, and they all rejected it? Well, um, I've always had a lot of rejections. I was rejected from the MFA program at Columbia. I got in on the third time, and um, I couldn't get at all. Uh, I think I said every agent in New York, I think, rejected my first book because it had infanticide in it. And I would get these amazingly nice rejection letters, like, this is why we got into publishing, but we won't be able to sell this. Um, and then... Um, for I Smile Back, I, I got it got rejected by over 80, um, 80 publishers. They, eight, eight, I just want to underline that. It got rejected by 80 publishers, and the movie now is playing around the corner for me. And, and the, the funny thing was is that um, I had to get a new agent in between a mouthful of air. I had finally found this great agent, Amy Leonard, in San Francisco, and I had to get a new agent because of different conflict of interest things. And this very high-powered agent said they would be my agent. And I went and I met with her, and, and she had done, like, a bunch of very big chick books at the time. And I just felt like, why do you want to be my agent? And she said, well, you know, I do books like this, this, and this, um, so that every so often – I can do a book like yours. Uh, actually, she, she did The Devil Wears Prada. I don't know why I'm worried about protecting her name. I do things like The Devil Wears Prada so that, you know, I can do this. And I said, you sure? Because, like, you know, my last book got a lot of rejections, and she said yes. And so she took the book on, and I never felt totally comfortable. And my husband was like, well, that's because of your self-esteem. You don't think that, like, you know, a big shot uh, – agent like this would be your agent, but I just didn't feel comfortable. And then for like a year, different things went on and I didn't hear from her. And there were some rejections. I think there were like seven rejections or 12 rejections. And when I finally reached her and got the nerve up to be like, instead of thinking I'm crazy that she's not writing me back, she said, well, I, you know, I got married, the book business is dying and I'm sorry. And so then I had a book, I Smiled Back, which had been sent out like, and rejected 12 times and no agent. And so I was really stuck in this terrible no man's land because no one wants, you know, like a used book that's been rejected. And uh, I was introduced, um, you know, a while later to my um, agent now, Andrew Blauner, who's really the most amazing agent. And he read I Smile Back. He knew it had been rejected. He knew it had had an agent before. And he said he understood everything. He wrote me this very long letter, and he understood it. And I remember because um, – Brian and my kids were sitting in the kitchen waiting for when I was going to get to speak to him on the phone, and they were so excited for me that I was finally going to get an agent again, and I walked in, and I, I shrugged my shoulders, and they said, what do you mean? I said, well, he just can't really do it right now because he had so many other books, and he just didn't have room for, like, a charity case. So then I, I kept Why you Why do you consider yourself a charity case? Well, it was going to be very, very hard for him to sell, and he wasn't going to really make any money off of it, and he was helping... He was working on, I guess, at the time, other, you know, hard projects. And so he was at least honest enough to say, like, I get this and I really like this, but I'm not going to be able to do this right now. And I, I spoke to him and I spoke to him. And finally, I, I, I don't – I he went to collegiate and um, there was a collegiate book fair and I went there and I, I basically begged him again, can you be my agent? And he said yes. And then he proceeded to send it to – 
I, I mean, like basically every editor. I don't even know if there's this many editor, this many publishing houses exist anymore. Um, and he would get rejections. I remember one rejection I had from this editor named Star Lawrence. I kept it on our corkboard for years because it said. Uh, this too closely mirrors the disappointments in life, and I remember throwing my up, my arms up in the air, even though it was rejection letter, and going, "I did it! I did it! This is what you're supposed to do. You know, you're supposed to try to mirror life." And uh, finally, uh, Andrew found um, this very small independent publisher in Ohio called Two Dollar Radio, uh, Eric and Eliza Obanoff. They um, uh, they, I think Eric at the time was either a bartender or he was managing a restaurant. He still does something like that. Eliza was doing copy editing. They had a baby. And they paid me um, $700 or maybe $800, $750 for the book. And they put it out. They weren't scared. And um, so, you know, at the end of the day, all you need is, is – is one person to say yes. And, and in fact, Eric was so smart because by the time he got the book, I had tacked on an ending um, in trying to sell the book. And he said, listen, you know, you got, I feel like that is tacked on. And I said, it is, you know, I only sent it to you because I was trying to get a book deal. And he said, no, you know, um, that that's not right. And he made me take that off. And he also understood, he said, you know, the reason she's having these affairs is because, She's anxious. She's not anxious because she's having these affairs. And I thought, oh, like I would never have been able to put that into words. And so I was really lucky they published the book. And, you know, um, they published a couple thousand copies, and I sold a couple thousand copies, and that was that. And then and then, how did that go from, from a, a couple thousand copies to then being made into a movie? Uh, well, I've still only really sold a couple thousand copies. Um, so not, the movie so far hasn't really affected my book sales. But because I know that the books are small and not for everybody, um, in terms of I think you had said something about the market, I never think about the market. So in those ways, it, it makes it easier. But um, what happened was I, I, I wasn't thinking about making it into um, a screenplay. I was driving up the West Side Highway to pick uh, my son up from school, and I heard Sarah uh, on the Howard Stern show. She was talking about her memoir. And um, the, the bed weather, actually, the bed weather, by the way, an excellent memoir. Yes, and um, I actually heard that that interview's on YouTube or on somehow I could hear. It, and I thought about listening to it, but then I thought, no, it was better. It's better not to hear it again because I don't know precisely what it was that I heard, but. It was something in the tone of her voice, the way she was talking about loneliness or sense of aloneness or home or something like that. And I just thought she's going to understand this. And like I was saying before, in terms of wanting to be understood, that's why I got the book to her. And um, the miracle was uh, she opened it and read it. And so then um, we met and when we were uh in, you know, having coffee, I looked at her and I said, if I, like, adopted this, would you, would you be in this, like, if it were a movie? And she was like, sure, if it doesn't suck, because I, I remember coming home and saying to Brian, oh, you know, she was just humoring me, you know, she felt bad, so she was like, sure, um, but she set the bar right where I could 
you know, handle it at the if it doesn't suck bar. So I called Paige and I was like, you want to adopt this with me? We just have to make it good enough that it doesn't suck. And so, um, so, so that's how it started. A- Amy, like, despite like you, you, you know, you're very self-deprecating and you're, it was rejected everywhere. And you know, all, all of these things you're saying. And yet at the same time, you're like a hardcore hustler. Like, You've yeah, it's it. a weird thing because I look back and I go, how come you didn't quit with all of your insecurities? And I mean, I have more voices in my head saying, you're terrible, you're, this, is, this is stupid, this is cliche. You know, and there's not one bad review that I ever get that I haven't already given myself you know, a million times, <laughs> which makes me more impervious to them uh, because you know, the, the voice telling me how worthless everything I'm doing is, somehow yet there must be part of me that just is like, no, I'm going to keep on trying. So, so um, l- l- let me ask about that because, uh, uh, you know, how, how d- it seems like in this world, you do have to hustle. Like, and it's not like you're going to write a book and suddenly the agents, the producers, the publishers, the stars are all going to sh- shower down love and affection on you. Like to get something done, you, you do have to hustle. So what is oh, well, the technique? You know, um, it's funny because uh, this is why I'm so so grateful to be on your podcast because even now I I have this new book coming out and I have this movie and so you know one would think that okay I'm gonna finally be able to get reviews because I've never been a cool networker person so I never was able to figure out how to get into like you know the New York intelligentsia cool Brooklyn crowd of people so I thought okay but I mean. Well, at this fuck point, you them. Ha- like, they, who cares about that? <laughs> at this point, I thought, you've had to have written yourself out of obscurity at this point. And meanwhile, I am writing and emailing every blogger, um, book club person saying, could you read Hesitation Wounds? Can you read uh, Hesitation Wounds? Because you constantly, as a writer, have to beg to be heard and um, insist upon it. I, I forget what your original question was, but uh, you just have to keep forcing yourself to do it. But internet has made it much easier because you like people can't hear my voice shake as much or the secretary can't stop me where, you know, I have to get through the secretary. Now I just have to get through like the spam uh, rejector, which can be harder, but I can keep trying. And I, I tried to learn how to use Twitter about three weeks ago to see if I could get any reviews for, um, hesitation wounds. And, I didn't, I didn't understand how to use Twitter. And um, Brian came home that night and he was like, you know, you spammed like a hundred and something people on, on Twitter. And I said, well, what does that even mean? He's like, I kept thinking that I was carefully writing people saying, would you think, you know, looking up who people were and asking for reviews, but I didn't realize it was all public. And so everybody saw me asking these other no, people. No, no, no. So, he, so he, I'm not great at it, he, but I just keep trying and, um, but 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 no. you know I I think that's I think that's an important thing to note that no matter what your personal state of fear might be in a situation r- r- with the internet or without the internet the key thing is to just say okay what am I doing today to push my dreams and my projects forward and then actually do them so there's a difference between the people who do and the people who don't and it has nothing to do with fear or shyness or introversion or extroversion it has to do with all it has to do with is whether you did it or you didn't do it yeah and you can you can um make it 
easy where you can go, okay, well, I'm going to reach out to two people today or I'm going to reach out to four people today. And the worst somebody can say to you is no. And no, it doesn't hurt. It, it, it can't. I mean, it hurts. It makes you feel, oh, shucks. Um, I wish that they would understand or would want to read. But then if you know that you're going to go on to another person, then it's like, okay, because you only need to to get you know, one person to say yes and believe in you that they will represent you. One person to say yes that they will put your book out there. And and the thing that always keeps me going because like I said, I don't really sell um a lot of books are I, I collect all the positive things. Like once I remember a couple of years ago I tried to get be in this writing contest and you needed to be able to show three rejection letters. And I don't have any rejection letters because I either delete them or rip them up um, when they used to come in the mail. And I thought, oh, my goodness, no one has more rejection letters than me. But I I didn't hold on to any of them to be in this um, contest because the rejections don't matter. Um, Doesn't it it show you the uselessness of the publishing industry, though, where like now now we can just you you could write a novel and you could essentially upload it to. Amazon and iBooks and all and and BarnesandNoble.com and you could you could publish yourself like heck I'll give you seven hundred dollars. I can't. That's the one thing I can't. I can't. Um, I need uh, 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 this can be totally wrong and I'm I'm not passing judgment on somebody else. I mean Virginia Woolf self-published, but I can't self-publish. I need somebody to believe in me. Okay, I'll tell publish. you what. Next next week you write. <laughs> Next book you write after Hesitation Wounds, I will top all of your other prior advances and I will form a publishing company and publish your book. Okay. Well, you know, I did get um, a bigger, I'm on um, the Overlook Press, this book, Hesitation Wounds, and they actually sometimes, they get books in bookstores and I thought I might actually finally be in a bookstore right when you don't need to be in a bookstore. (laughs) But maybe I actually will finally be in a bookstore. Well, well, that's a good point though because, and so we'll talk about Hesitation Wounds, but even if you get um, accepted by a publisher, now the bookstore has to accept the book from the publisher and that often means the publisher has to pay. Most people don't know this, but every, and you know this probably, but every position of the book in the bookstore is paid for by the publisher. So if I just see the spine as opposed to the cover, when I pass the, the, the shelf, that means the, the, the publisher didn't pay for me to see the cover. Or if I'm on the front, t- like even the staff picks at Barnes and Noble are all paid for by the publisher. So every position of a book in a bookstore is paid for by the publisher out of their marketing budget for your book. So that's why most books don't make it into the publisher. But but let's talk about hesitation wounds. So but I, I was just gonna say that it's kind of like um, the supermarket business because yes. where your product is placed is so much it depends on the distributor and, and the and the power of the distributor and the same thing goes for reviews um, and that's very frustrating. But the great thing about the internet is it makes it much easier to find your people because there's so many communities of people who uh, even if the community is 20 people versus 20,000 people and you can find those people and then they might tell their friend about you and their friend about you and then um, ultimately you'll find your readers or if you make a really good tasting um, jelly and you keep (laughs) giving it to people eventually maybe you'll have you know uh, jelly that gets into the bookstore. But, but again, I'm, I'm going to get back. Sorry, I'm, I'm going to get back to the self-publishing thing for a second because, as you said, 
the publisher is not going to find your online community for you. You're going to find it. And those are the people who are going to buy your books. Those are the people who are going to, who are going to stand up and say, yes, this is a great book. Uh, not, not the people the publisher finds because they don't find anyone for you. Well, I mean, I, I think that there are amazing editors and there still are amazing publishers. I think that, I think that it's, um, particularly with, with literature or fiction, I, I think that there's a real use for, um, the great editors and publishers. I just have never been able to like hit the, have stuff that people want that they think that they can also sell. Like, I don't actually think it's the publishers or the editors fault. I think they're in a business that's dying. Fiction is not something that people pay so much, you know, that's like the last thing that people want to do is read. They can, they can watch great things on television. They can go see a movie. And so I think they're just scared and I'm not as cynical about it because I understand that, you know, they want to be able to keep publishing things and they want to maintain their jobs. And, and so that's fine. Thank goodness that now there's other, you know, ways to go about getting an audience. But um, I do think that, that there is a, a good, I think publishers can be a force for good, not just a force for um profit. I, I believe that. And I also think the kind of validation that they get and, and, and the, the initial working with you. So let me ask you about Hesitation Moons, because I read an earlier draft. I thought it was excellent. And then you gave me very good notes. Yes, because then you wrote me back and said that actually some sections you moved around and, and changed. And I wanted to understand and that process. But first, maybe describe what Hesitation Moons is about. Uh, Hesitation Wounds is about um, a woman named Susa Seliko. She's uh, around 45 years old, and she specializes in treatment-resistant psychiatry. And she has um, uh, this one patient who, um, for some reason, she she specializes in treatment-resistant psychiatry, which means she's kind of, you know, the last stop on the crazy train. So when the regular psychopharmacologists uh, can't quite, or the psychiatrists can't figure out uh, how to make a patient better through uh, medication, or maybe they need electroconvulsive therapy. They they go to um, this kind of doctor, and so for her, it's 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 safer because she doesn't have to have you know intimate relationships. There's no talk therapy here, but for some reason, this one patient breaks through, and um, it makes her, it forces her to uh, address uh, the death of her brother when she was younger. He had killed himself and how much, even though it seems like she's living a full life, how much she's never really allowed herself to love and be loved because she was so shattered by his death. And so, so again, let me ask you this. Where inside of you did this book exist before you wrote it? Well, I, I did realize afterwards, I mean, it took me like nine years to write, as I think I said, and I finished it around a month before my son graduated. Um, I finished like one of the first real drafts uh, before he graduated high school. And I um, can't not realize that I think that I, that the whole book for me was a process of forgiving myself for um getting better and surviving and being happy. And I think I've probably always felt very guilty about that, 
But also, um, you know, can, can I ask you about that? Because it seems like so. So setting aside like massive commercial fiction, which also might I'm not criticizing massive commercial fiction like that also might hit deeper truths. But it seems like you have this really great talent at whether you're conscious of it or not, of really hitting these massively deep, like truths about yourself that you're working through and you don't even realize you're working through them as you write until afterwards. I think it's hard for people to kind of dig through the truth. Like most people are, are, are in denial of it most of their lives. Well, thank God. I mean, I, I'm, I'm so envious of people with better denial skills than me. Uh, I mean, I, 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 remember... I don't know. I don't know if that's something to be thankful. I mean, I don't know if that's something to, to want denial skills. I think I think well, it's very healing to, to, to be able to understand what truth means. But I remember when my grandmother died, seeing my grandfather and he was like, well, wh- what does it mean? What, what does this all mean? And it was the first time he was 80 something years old and he it was the first time he had recognized, you know, um, I don't want to say the futility of it all, but. He, it was the first time he was like, well, what does this mean? And I remember thinking, and he was a warm, loving, kind man. He wasn't a shallow man. It's just that he was lucky that that part of his his mind didn't wander in, in those directions. Like, So um, that's what I mean by denial. Like, it'd be good to have a tiny bit thicker skin or be able to look away a little bit um, better because uh, I remember saying this to... Brian and him saying it was crazy, but um, uh, this is, you know, often things, but I never say, you know, when you're, by the time you're like five years old or however old you are, when you realize that everyone you love is going to die, it's amazing that every five-year-old child doesn't just go running into traffic because it's um, a horrible thought, as I was saying earlier, when you realize that it all ends in loss. So how do you negotiate with that? Um, how do you allow yourself to be happy when you know that this happiness is going to ultimately end in pain? And so uh, through Susa, I guess I finally said to myself, well, um, this is your chance at it. This is your, your chance to, um, to, to, to be happy and you might as well take advantage of it and it's okay. And as I was writing it, I was taking advantage of it. I, my kids and Brian, luckily, I've been like um, a happy, warm, not depressed parent and wife. But inside of myself, I guess, I always, to a certain degree, questioned um, whether or not I was allowed to and whether or not I was ultimately strong enough to handle loving everybody to the extent that I love them because, you know, it's very scary. You love these people and you're going to have to say goodbye to them one day, even just saying that sentence. So so this borders on like two different kind of topics, which is, you know, let's say man's search for meaning by Viktor Frankl or even existentialism where uh, we kind of have to question our existence without any evidence of any reason to question our existence. And, uh, I'm sorry, I lost you for a second. Yeah. Well, well, you, you kind of do that through your books where you, you kind of question the meaning of existence without having any, any basis to, to hope. Yeah. When, when I was in, um, Toronto, there, I had made it through, we, we went to Toronto for the Toronto Film Festival and I had made it through 
all these interviews and I didn't cry. And I was really proud of myself. I didn't even know that I, that I hadn't cried until, of course, I started crying. Um, but this one woman came in and she had the kindest eyes and she uh, was a reporter and she told me she was a recovering alcoholic and she had a son and she related a lot to the movie. And then she said to me, um, well, what would you tell Lainey? Like, what would you tell somebody like that? Or, you know, what would you tell somebody who struggles to um, keep it all together? And, of course, I knew she was talking about herself. And I said, um, I, I would tell... I would tell them to hold on to the ice cream cone, and um, they. She said, um, uh, Paige was next to me, and they both looked at me like, "What?" And I, I, I had said this to um, Brian. I, I did his podcast. I, I, I had said that um, the way I live my life is I used to be walking with my kids and having an ice cream cone, and I would think, "Okay, if everything faded to black right now." It's okay, it'd be worth it because look, here we are having this ice cream cone and this is enough and, and then what I realized as I got better or allowed myself to accept a little more was that um, I remember sitting at a fountain with Brian and watching them eat ice cream and we were all eating ice cream and I just remember like no matter what happens I have to hold on to this because no matter how sad I ever get or how discouraged I get or scared or anxious, I just need to get back to um, another moment of having an ice cream cone. So, so, so l- let me let me ask you about that. And, and my, my whole existential philosophy is based on hogging us. Yeah. But, but but I like that because sometimes <laughs> sometimes the. Sometimes rather than getting into these big philosophical tangents, it's good to, to hold on to the ice cream cone. I, I'm actually going to steal that from you and not give you any credit, but <laughs> that's okay. But, but, uh, but like, what do you do? Like if someone is, let's say, you know, in, in, in all of your books, like hesitation wounds or, or I smile back, you have a person who's dealing with this enormous grief that they can't get rid of. Like, like you even say it in hesitation wounds, like the the that you can't that that person no matter what you do the person the other person is dead <laughs> no matter what you do and 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 in 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 I smile back it's not like the other person's dead but the other person's brain has has checked out like they're, they're they have this disorder and they're not coming back anytime soon so th- so they're not all there so what do you do if you're the person who's who's alive and who's watching it or who, or who survived, what, you know, you've already kind of said the answer with holding on to the ice cream cone, but what is, what do you do? What does somebody do to, when, when they're in that situation? Well, um, well, those are two different situations. The, the situation of being a depressed person or being a bipolar person or whatever, you know, that post under my only advice to them is if you hold on and you keep trying as hard as you can try. I mean, Lainey is totally responsible for everything that happens. She has every opportunity to get better and she doesn't get better. She doesn't take her medication. Um, I do think that the older I get, the thing that I feel most about depression is the way the only way you can really get better is by taking your ego completely out of it. I, I don't know the smart way, to, like the intellectually smart way to say this, but I remember when I was in my worst place, I wasn't able to make coffee. 
and I would look at like this green preps automatic coffee machine and I would just think, gosh, maybe one day I'll be able to make coffee. And when I finally did get better enough that I could pour the water into the thing and spoon out the amount of instant coffee and not have to call the deli to get coffee for um, me and Brian, I remember feeling a huge victory in that. And um, I think that you need to collect those teeny, teeny, tiny victories and moments of beauty, you know, ice cream cone moments. And eventually, if you have enough faith, those moments... um, and and meditation will bring you to to the other side. And and that's that's very individual. So like, but what about the people? But the people that love the person who has this is much more complicated because you could be married to somebody like me. I mean, well, first of all, different illnesses are different. I mean, somebody who's bipolar that's much more complicated in many ways than. Um, being clinically depressed, it's harder to find the medication, and often those medications have um, uh, harder side effects to deal with. Um, but the per-person basis, I mean, I think that that is the struggle for Bruce and I smile back. You know, how long do you hold on? How much do you give until you know you can't help that person? And um, that I don't know the answer to because I, for instance, with my father, um I loved him and loved him no matter what he did, you know, as long as I possibly could until finally I realized it was going to affect my children. And, you know, after having him come back and then I realized, no, I have to protect what I worked hard to. um, So, so So that was Bruce's example of, you know, what I was describing for metaphorically where, you, you put everything on the scales and see where it ends up and you make a rational choice after many, many perhaps irrational uh, choices. I, I don't think you can even make a rational choice. I think it just becomes, I, I don't, I don't think it's a rational choice. I think it just becomes a moment of survival. Like it becomes a point where you realize you're not going to survive if you, if you stay with that person. I mean, Hopefully for other people, it's a, it's a rational choice and they don't get to that point. But I know for me, if I had kept trying to have a relationship with my dad, um, the ways in which he wanted to have a relationship, everything that I had worked hard to protect and build would have been, meaning my little family, would have gotten hurt in the process. So I knew somehow instinctively, much more than intellectually. Afterwards, I can say it now because I have the perspective, but at the time, it was just the way in which I had to go to breathe, you know, so um, So it's not so easy to figure out. Yeah, and so so I want to ask one more question, and this is is related to I Smile Back, but I want to heavily encourage people to read both I Smile Back and Hesitation Wounds, and I haven't seen the movie yet for I Smile Back, but I am definitely going to see it. But in the, you know, Sarah Silverman, who obviously plays Lainey, we, we talked about that. She suggested in an interview, she said that too often people in depression skip the meds because they feel they're missing out on the highs and lows. Uh, you know, and I wonder, is that, is that, I, I, I do believe that that's true. But again, that's like almost selfishly not taking into account the people around you, does it really, do you really miss out on the highs and lows on, on depression medication if you're heavily 
uh, chronically depressed? Wait, well, um, uh, depression medication, I, I, I think the highs and lows that she's actually talking about more are when you take lithium, that uh, medication that people take more for uh, the different medications that people take more for um, bipolar illness. For me, um, the depression, uh, I didn't miss out on any – I remember it took me a long time to take antidepressant medication, and and I thought a lot of those things – I mean, this was a long time ago. I thought – I believed a lot of those things. You know, you don't feel anything. You're numb. You, you If you take these kinds of medications, you know, you don't want to have sex. You don't want to write. You won't be able to be creative. But the truth was, when I was depressed, it wasn't like I was like, hey, let's fuck. Let's write. Let's, you know, it wasn't until I was able to um, – feel better that I was able to then enjoy things and taste things and hear things and well, see things. So uh, for me, I never missed highs and lows. I just wanted to be able to feel again and not be completely numb. And what about, um, what about lithium? And I know obviously you're not a doctor talking about this, but right. you, but you've written about it. So what about the lithium? Does that take away the, the highs and the lows? Well, I do think that a lot of times when you have, um, an issue like a, a, a mood disorder and you spend a lot of your time self-medicating. Like I can just speak for Lainey because um, that's the only person I, I really feel like I know inside and out. She knows that certain things are going to immediately make her feel better. She knows if she drinks, that's going to make her feel better. Or she knows if she goes and fucks a random guy, that's going to make her feel better because during that time that she's having sex with him, she's not, um, being overcome with her anxieties, she actually is able to, like, kind of, you know, be outside of her, herself. She's so, um, which I think is another reason why she becomes a very unsympathetic character to people because women, um, where we kind of understand, like, oh, a guy goes to Vegas and he fucks some prostitute because, you know, he's, he was having fun with his friends or he's having an affair with his secretary because, you know, he has a lot of pressure at work or he's having this, like, crisis. We've all kind of, we don't think it's right, and if it's your friend that it happens to you, you go like, oh, so-and-so, what a dick. But, like, if – but we understand that culturally where a mother, um, a woman, and a mother to do that, that's something we don't accept. We can't handle a woman, um, like I said, you know, fucking to escape. And um, But Lady knows that makes her feel better. And so I think that for her, that – she thinks that feels better than taking the medication. I think the medication doesn't give her the same kind of relief. And it's really, it's really selfish that she doesn't take the medication. She comes back from rehab and she goes and she sees her father and, and she finally confronts her father for having left when she was a child. And she gets in the car and she just still doesn't have the tools to rely on medication and help and, and to and so she goes and she resorts to what she knows will make her feel better to drink and to sleep with some guy and it gives her a momentary break but um, it's not going to make her better so, it's so, too bad because Bruce really loved her and I the, the one thing I do think in terms of what you're saying is I forgot that I had thought a lot about this uh that, you know, we live in this, like, era where we believe in rehabilitation, and and uh, and I believe in rehabilitation, obviously. Um, 
And you can apologize to the people that you hurt along the way and make amends. But the problem is, is that for Lainey, even if her father said he was sorry, or even if my father had said he was sorry, you can't get your childhood back. And I think that's very hard for, for some people to um, live with, the, the, the rage of what was taken from them. So, so, so. Amy, I just want to again say, uh, A, thank you for coming on my podcast. I really appreciate it. This has been a long time. I've been wanting and looking forward to this. And uh, I do really recommend people read I Smile Back, Hesitation Wounds. And I can't wait to see the movie I Smile Back because not only have I read the book, but Sarah Silverman's one of my favorite comedians. And, and I want to see her as, a, as an actress as well. But I also am really upset at you, Amy, because you did not cry on my podcast. Yes, I did. I started to cry twice. I wiped my nose. I just was good at holding my voice. <laughs> you right. got me twice. All right. Uh, you'll be able to hear it back. You'll hear a quiver. But I, I was trying to uh, not lose it completely. I... I hope I made some sense. I'm not an expert on any of these things. No, no, um, you are, and you've written very powerful books, <laughs> and I and and they have revealed things to me as I was reading them. So uh, I really uh, appreciate it. Thank you. That means so much. And thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. No problem. And I will. I am sure I will talk to you soon, Amy. Thank okay, you very much. Thank you. Bye. Bye. For more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network at stansberryradio.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.